Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. Opened up my mailbox and it was just overflowing with election stuff everywhere falling out with election material i've started to get text messages how many people have gotten unwanted text messages from this almost everyone we are nine days away from a midterm election and if you're like me you are already so tired of the rat race, it feels like, and this is no insult to professional wrestling, but it does feel a little bit like professional wrestling at this point. Just all sorts of things pouring out of our mailboxes, the commercials, the advertisements, the mailers, all for us to vote for the candidate. And I know as we move into these times, it can be a lot of anxiety. It can uh, can kind of stir in us some anger, some thanks, but it's actually driven, I hope you know this as we move into this time, that these times in our country's history are driven by an actually a good desire. You see, what we all are longing for, we're longing for people who will leverage their power to create a good and just and righteous world, right? We want to have leaders. We want to have People who are powerful use that power and leverage it to create something good instead of just creating something that benefits themselves. I mean, I, can, can I just assume you want that, right? You want a world that is just and good, and you want people with power, with influence, to use that to create a just and righteous world. The problem has never been power itself, per se. It's that we are prone as human beings to to leverage power, our our political power, our social power, our cultural power, our religious power for our own benefit, for our people, for our side, for people who are like us. And it's not that we we only seek this uh, just, you know, for ourselves. We seek it for those who are like us at a disadvantage and often undermining the flourishing of others. That's what has formed within our political landscape in America. And Every one of us are longing for something more. We're longing for that just and good and righteous world. And we're longing for those who do have power to work towards that and work towards that together. I hope that's the cry of your heart. And I know it's never done perfectly. I know it's never done fully, but at least in part to want, to long for a good and just and righteous world. And it's a cry that we're giving our attention today as we continue in how to pray. A couple weeks ago, we talked about our Father, how we approach God in prayer as our Father with identity and intimacy. A few weeks back, then we talked about uh, hallowed be your name, which speaks to God's desire and our desire to, to reveal himself fully, not just the caricatures that the world has of him, that God would fully and finally be revealed in Jesus. And this week we continue with the next request that really speaks to that good desire that we're seeing all around us for a good and just and righteous world and longing for those in power to bring that world to bear. And that's your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. This is a prayer that is unsatisfied with a faith that remains in the hypothetical. This is a prayer that is unsatisfied with just souls going to heaven when they die. It speaks to the longings of the world around us. Even those with whom we disagree, oh, they are crying out for that longing that heaven would come to earth. And while this is a central idea, a central part of the prayer, a central part of our theology as followers of Jesus, it wasn't actually unique to Jesus. In Jewish prayer, it was common. In the Kaddish, the prayer book, the faithful Jews, they were taught to pray, may he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of those whole household of Israel speedily and at a near time. This was a common sort of framework for how to pray for the world to be changed. Jesus is joining in a very Jewish prayer. And in the context of Jesus' day, they're saying this, they're crying out for a world that is just and righteous and holy because they're living under the violent tyranny of Rome. And for thousands of years, if you look at the Jewish story over and over and over again, they lived under the yoke of oppression, under empires and kings who saw their lives as meaningless other than what they could produce for the world around them. So to ask ourselves, to ask, to pray, God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This wasn't for Jesus. This wasn't for people in his day, just a spiritual platitude. This was, we need rescue now. We need restoration now. God, we need you here. It's broken. It's hurting. And we long for where you are, the fullness of heaven to come to bear on earth. Another way of putting this, something we can agree on, and those who even don't even have faith, they probably wouldn't put it this way, but I bet in, at heart, we all would agree that we're looking for heaven on earth. We're looking for an experience of heaven coming to earth. You see this in almost everything around you. Something we can all agree on, whether we are culturally or politically the same on that spectrum. There is something terribly wrong with this world, and we're longing for something to change. I read an article a few months back that was about these growing senses of internet religion and how the only nonpartisan issue in the world right now is that it feels like everything is going bad. The only thing we all can agree on, both sides of every single issue, is that the world feels like it's ending. We are longing to find heaven on earth. And so we grasp at any and everything, any whisper of transcendence, whether it be through sports or through spirituality or through entertainment or through relationships. We are finding ways to see where that might be. We're finding the people who stand in the way of that, and we're finding ways to point the finger. We are learning to draw dividing lines everywhere we are because heaven and earth are clearly not fully here, and so we have to know whose fault that is. And it wasn't that different in Jesus' day, because under the oppression of Rome, the Jewish people, they knew what it meant to live where a world was broken. They knew the same sort of pain we did. They knew what it felt like to see what's happening in the world and yet feel, feel helpless, feel like there's nothing we can do to change it. 
That's the heart level question they're asking that we ask in this prayer is how do we bring heaven to earth? How does God answer the prayer that we pray? Well, it starts with understanding kind of the framework of Jesus's day and how some of the Jewish folks understood this. I'm going to get a little bit of a history lesson here, so don't you nod off, okay? Stay with me. This is, it's interesting to me at least. I bet it will be interesting to you. So, there's basically four sort of political religious frameworks in Jesus's day. The first one you've probably heard of, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a strict religious reforming group whose focus was on purity and holiness. And they got this purity and holiness by how they kept the law perfectly and kept all of their own traditions and laws that they added on top of that. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws. Because of this, the Pharisees, they were very certain on who was in and who was out. That was very important to them. And in their view, if Israel would just simply keep the law for one day fully and perfectly, then the Messiah would come back and usher in the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. It's important to know that the, the Pharisees were not really this up there sort of powerful group. This was a populist, middle-class movement. They stood on the outside of the elite. They wanted to speak truth to power. And let me just say very quickly here that a lot of times I have, and, and many of us Christians have used the word Pharisee as sort of a pejorative, as an insult. And one of the things that I've learned and I'm, I'm repenting of is using that Pharisee language as if it's something that's an insulting word. Because this was a group of religious people who were very similar in many ways to Jesus. Some scholars have even you know, put out there that Jesus may have been in some form or fashion Pharisee. It's not the Pharisees themselves. It was the posture and the attitude with which they held their beliefs. They believed that heaven would come to earth by keeping the law. My friends, when we talk about the Jewish people from the context of the scriptures and contrast that with Jesus, we need to be very certain, especially in these days, that we're not doing it with a borderline anti-Semitic kind of vibe about how we speak about these things. These were people who were very similar in many ways to Jesus, and they were people that Jesus loved. The Pharisees believed heaven would come to earth if you and I could just figure it out and keep the law. Then there's the Sadducees, who make, they make a brief appearance in the Gospels. They were wealthy and aristocratic and the, the a sort of class of priests whose main concern was the temple. They weren't into all that religious activism of the Pharisees. They simply wanted to maintain the temple and the Torah and rejected all the crazy beliefs that the Pharisees had, like the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe that was something they needed to believe in. That was out there. They just wanted to maintain order and power and the status quo, not only in the temple, but in their own lifestyle because they benefited quite well from the context of the temple. They made their living quite well from how the temple was maintained. So they were committed to making sure that machine stayed going. Anything to undermine that machine, anything to undermine the temple and the Torah and the tradition and the holding up the structures as they were, they believed it was the enemy. They believed heaven would come to earth in and through, in and through primarily what happened 
at the temple. Third group here, you may have heard of them before. They're not in the scriptures, but their influence is very well known today. A group called the Essenes. And they're the reason why, if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is where they came from. To the Essenes, the corruption they saw in Rome and the corruption they saw and the religious authorities, it was so overwhelming that they went all homestead and decided we're just gonna move out in the middle of nowhere and start our own little community away from everybody else so we can maintain the purity of our beliefs and practices away from the evil world. So they moved out into the desert. They built their own communities and communes and they focused on, I'm going to be pure. I'm going to be pure in my religion and my practice because Rome is evil empire is evil, but guess what? All the religious people are evil too. I'm going to stay away from them. We're going to be our own thing out here and just stay as pure as possible away from everyone else. They believe the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven if they could maintain, if we could maintain purity. And then finally, there's the zealots. The zealots were this sort of extremist wing of the Pharisees with one key difference. If Rome was going to be defeated, it wasn't from just kind of keeping the law, even though that's important. You see, the zealots, they thought it was only going to arrive by us taking up a sword and doing it ourselves. The only way to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven is to fight and fight back, to take up the sword, to take up the battle against Rome and shed blood so the kingdom could come. The, the zealots were like domestic terrorists against the power of Rome. They were spilling blood, and they saw this spilling of blood as the sacrifice that was necessary to make the world as it should be. They believed that heaven would come on earth as it is in heaven through power and through violence. Now, out of those four I just mentioned there, do you see any parallels with modern political religious frameworks that you've encountered before? Maybe just a little. And just as an aside, I think it's really important to know that Jesus, when he invited his disciples, invited Matthew, the tax collector, who's literally bankrolling Rome, and he invited Simon the Zealot, the very political opposite of Matthew, the tax collector. Jesus intentionally chose to invite the polar opposite socio-political religious mindset into being his disciples. Not so we could have kumbaya and everybody get along, because in both the tax collecting and in the zealotry, those had to submit to the kingdom of God. And the same is true for us today. He's inviting people on every side to be disciples, but none of us are submitting to one side or the other. We're all bringing our political imaginations, our allegiances, and we're laying them down at the feet of Jesus and saying, you reshape the way I see the world. Amen? That is important, my friends, especially as we move forward in these next couple of weeks. Our allegiance, our imagination is being reshaped by the kingdom of God. So whether it's the Pharisees or Sadducees or Essenes or Zealots, or whether it's some modern formation, Jesus stands in defiance to each one of these. There may be similarities, but Jesus invites us into something different. He begins his ministry by saying the kingdom of God has 
come near. It's not up there. It's not far away. It's not an idea in your head. The kingdom of God has arrived in nearness right here. So repent and believe the good news. This is a different kind of kingdom that is arriving on earth as it is in heaven. Like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots, Jesus knew all too well that the world is broken. He could agree with them on that point, but he was obviously, obviously not oblivious to the suffering, and yet we see that Jesus would not and refuses to fit the mold of any one of them. And let me tell you, my friends, Jesus still refuses to fit the mold. Jesus still refuses to be the square peg in the round hole of our categories that we like to place him in. I hope we cling to this. This isn't political ideas, my friends. This is discipleship 101 that Jesus holds our greatest allegiance. There are similarities. Like the Pharisees, Jesus believed in the law, but he did not weaponize the law against other people. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, that I have come to abol- I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus, he became the law for us. By faith, we receive the benefit of what Jesus has accomplished in embodying in himself the fullness of the law, in obeying on our behalf. When God looks at us and sees righteousness, he doesn't see it because we have, like the Pharisees hoped, kept the law perfectly. It's because Jesus has kept the law perfectly and has applied the righteousness of his life to us. That's good news. Because none of us, none of us are keeping the law perfectly. Unlike the Sadducees, Jesus was uninterested in maintaining the religious status quo of tradition. And instead of centering the faith in the temple, instead of God coming to earth in Jesus and him plopping down in the middle of the temple and said, everybody, if you want to meet God, come here and hear this and do this. Come to the high mountain where the holy man is. No, Jesus did not center his ministry on the temple. In fact, he speaks to the religious leaders. He says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Later, he'd tell them, you're going to destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Speaking of his body, it would be rebuilt and restored, resurrected. And so he is wholly uninterested in a religion that stood in a temple apart from the everyday lives of the people that God sent him to love. Listen, as we gather on Sundays, this is important. I love that we get to gather. I love there's folks joining us on the live stream who are not feeling well or out of town. We do this, and it is important. But if it's only this, we've missed the gospel, right? We've taken a different gospel. And unlike the Essenes, Jesus didn't separate himself for the world, for the, from the world for the sake of purity. Instead, he became Uh, impure by the company he kept by religious standards. Jesus purified those that he welcomed into the kingdom of God. Instead of him touching unclean people and coming unclean, the God who was holy touched the unclean and they became clean. That's a big difference. In Luke 7, Jesus says, the son of man, he came eating and drinking. You say, here's this glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why was he accused of this? It's because God did not stay, sat up on his own in his purity, away from the sinful world. The most holy, the fullness of holiness himself in Jesus went to where the brokenness was 
and he loved. And unlike the zealots, Jesus refused to shed the blood of his enemy to grasp for or maintain power. Instead, he teaches us, as we know, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So where does heaven and earth meet? I want to answer that question fully and finally today. Heaven and earth have met in Jesus. Heaven and earth have come together in his life and death and resurrection and ascension, and they meet together in Christ in us. We see this beautiful truth fully and finally on the cross. On the cross, Jesus fulfilled the law. He did that, but he also forgave our transgressions. On the cross, the veil that separated the presence of God in the temple from where we were was torn in two. And now we are, as his people, the temple. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself the impurities, the sins that separated us from God by shedding his own blood, by his sacrifice. He applied his righteousness to us. And on the cross, Jesus shed his own blood, not the blood of his enemies, revealing that in our kingdom, we don't kill our enemies, we die for them. That's the kingdom we've been invited into. We see this power that the cross holds that no throne or empire or oval office or halls of Congress or voting booth could ever touch. And the kingdom of God that's bringing in Jesus is one that has power, yes, but it's power not like the powers of this world. The astounding news is that the same power that crucified Jesus was the same power that raised him from the dead and defeated death and division and hatred and sin once and for all. So when we, as a community here, we decide we're going to pray this, we're going to really pray this, not just believe it, but pray it and ask God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're asking God this, God, you've already started with the empty tomb. So anything's possible now. So anything could break into this world and bring healing and wholeness. We live in this tension, though, of the already and the not yet. God's kingdom has arrived in his resurrection, but it's not fully here. Which means that this prayer, as we ask this, it's an invitation to ask God in joining him and bringing more. and more of his kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven. We say this all the time. We don't bring God places. We join God in what he's already doing all around us. So when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you're invited into two things, really. You're invited into ache, and you're invited into the hope. You're invited into the holy discontent of what should be, and you're also invited into the power that can bring it, and the confidence that the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is actually dwelling, Scripture says, in you. And so if this is true, we are called in Jesus to pray this, to pray in the ache of what should be in this world, but also in the confidence 
that by God's grace and power, it could come to pass. And in the end, no matter what we experience in these times and these days, it will come to pass in fullness. We recognize then that there's work to do. Work that does not start with our actions, but actually starts with our prayer. This is where I've often gotten far, far backwards. I've imagined the kingdom of God as an activity that I get to do for God instead of the work that God is already actively, intentionally bringing in me and you and in the city where we are in our neighborhoods and we get to join God in what he is already doing. Do you understand how that posture shifts when I stop thinking it's my job to bring about something only God can bring about that God is already doing and I can join him in that. In our book, The How to Pray, that the groups are studying, Pete Gregg says this. I love this. He says, as a Christian, you've already received an even greater invitation. The King of Kings requests your presence at the very seat of government. He offers you a permanent place on his executive team so that you can influence his actions on behalf of nations. It is an unspeakable honor. Yet we are often too busy, too disbelieving, or too insecure to accept the greatest invitation of our lives. I love that. In the kingdom of Jesus, we need to understand that we are not helpless in a broken and weary world. We are not standing on the outside looking in. God, our Father, has invited us into the process and the story of bringing about his kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven, which means when we pray this, we're asking where we are in the mess and the sickness and the hurting and the failures and the fears of our lives, God, bring about your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And there's a word for this, this word for this type of prayer, churchy word is intercession. How many of you have heard that word before? Intercession. Intercession is simply asking God for change. Intercession is saying, God, I ask you, to step into this brokenness. And I'm asking you not passively, not, not as, as, as a sign that I think that I've released it, but I ask you, joining you actively, intentionally, and confidently in bringing about the change that I believe you're, you've laid on my heart to see in this world. Intercession is partnering with God to seek and to be that change that we want to see, not only in the big things around us, but partnering with God to be the change and to see the change in ourselves. Walter Wink, he writes these powerful words of encouragement that have really, I think, for this whole series anchored me. He says, history belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. I love that. By means of our intercessions, we veritably cast fire upon the earth and trumpet the future into being. You and I, we pray this at the intersection of our aches and longings and our confidence in God's power to bring this. Maybe you're like me and you battle from time to time the cynicism and the doubt of whether or not God still desires to bring change. If I've struggled with anything over the past few years, it's a growing sense of I'm just tired and cynical. And oftentimes I've allowed that to keep me from asking and praying bold prayers 
because of what I've seen before, because of abuse of this language, because of frameworks theologically that have caused pain to people. And I don't want to do that anymore. I want to pray boldly for big things. Jesus says you have not because you ask not. Ask, knock, seek. He tells a whole parable about being persistent and and being literally annoying in prayer because he wants us to keep knocking and seeking and praying boldly for him. And so what I wanted to close today with is just doing just that, asking God for breakthrough, asking God boldly for something we're longing for. for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And so just bow your head and close your eyes with me as we close today. And I want you to hold on to something that you feel right now. You feel the brokenness of this situation or relationship or struggle. Maybe it's your marriage, maybe kids, maybe uh, uh, your job, maybe it's a situation that just seems hopeless, maybe it's sickness or a struggle that you're entered into or someone you love has entered into, whatever that is, something big in the world around us that weighs on you. I want you to hold that one thing in your heart for a second here. I want you to feel the weight you to feel the longing that you have to see that change. us so deeply. 
that our minds and hearts can't comprehend. We offer up these things to you, God of all power, God of all love. Bring change. Let today be turning points even in ourselves and in these places in our stories as we offer these things to you. Lord, we pray this in 